This is a big week. There are two really important events occurring uh, this week. The first, most of you probably don't care any at all, but Wednesday, February 12th, pitchers and catchers report to spring training, which means uh, kind of officially the start of baseball season. And I would remind you, baseball is the national pastime. Now, the other event uh, occurring this week, this is a uh, special service announcement for all of us men, but Friday is Valentine's Day. So, don't forget that. And whether it's chocolates, flowers, uh, what is it when you get your, your toes done? Pedicure? Manicure, a day at the spa, spend your money wisely. I don't want to see a bunch of men in my office next week. So just don't forget that Friday is Valentine's Day. I haven't forgotten. Lori's gifts are hidden in our house. I'm already ahead of you. We're in Micah 5 uh, this morning, so please be turning... Uh, to Micah 5, and you might remember last week uh, I mentioned in our study together that uh, Old Testament prophecy often occurs on maybe three different levels. There there is usually uh, a, a level in which the prophetic writer will talk about a remnant, uh, a faithful remnant of God's people who would be restored to the promised land. Often prophecy also occurs on the level of prophecy being about the coming Messiah. And and often when the Messiah is prophesied about, there might be some implications for the church. And then there is a, a final level in which we find prophetic literature maybe looking to uh, the very end of human history and ultimate fulfillment of Jesus' return and the inbreaking of God one final time in human history in the establishment of His uh, perfect kingdom. This morning in Micah chapter 5, we we find a, a pretty difficult text in that While on one level, as we'll see, it's pretty simple to see what level of of prophecy Micah is uh, speaking of because we are told in a a Matthew chapter 2. But on the other hand, while he mentions a remnant, there also seems to be a, a very simple, almost immediate fulfillment of what Micah says here uh, in chapter 1. At least that's my understanding this morning. Now, if I study this text uh, this week, I might change my mind uh, by next Sunday. But here's where I am today. And we need to begin with a quick, brief lesson uh, from ancient Jewish history. In 725 B.C., Salmaneser V, who was king over the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, laid siege to the capital city of Samaria, 
eventually capturing the city in 722 B.C. and carried the northern kingdom into captivity. We can read about that historical event in 2 Kings chapter 17. Later that year, Shalmaneser was assassinated by his younger brother, Sargon II. Sargon ruled the Assyrian Empire for 17 years before dying in a battle in Anatolia. He was succeeded by his son, Sennacherib. 2 Kings 18 records that Sennacherib plundered Judah and captured all of the fortified cities. In an attempt to spare Jerusalem, King Hezekiah pays Sennacherib tribute with silver and gold. Archaeologists have discovered three almost identical copies of this event written on prisms from the Assyrian perspective. One of these prisms uh, Lori and I have seen, uh, perhaps you have seen if you visited uh, the British Museum in London. There is also one in Jerusalem and one in the Oriental Institute in Chicago. Each prism proclaims that 46 walled cities and innumerable smaller settlements were conquered by the Assyrians with over 200,000 people and a great quantity of livestock being deported and the conquered territory being dispersed among the three kings of the Philistines instead of being given back. Additionally, they say that Sennacherib's siege resulted in Hezekiah being shut up in Jerusalem like a caged bird. In 2 Kings 18... Sennacherib sends his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander along with a large army to threaten King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. When King Hezekiah hears the threat, 2 Kings 19 verse 1 says, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. It appears to me that is where we are in Micah chapter 5. And so this morning we continue our series of lessons through the minor prophet Micah that I have titled An Ancient Ethical Word for a Modern Unethical World. In Micah chapter 5, as we have encountered previously in the book, we will find words of doom and deliverance. I have divided the chapter into uh, five short sections. So let's read through uh, and make a few comments from Micah chapter 5. And then we'll turn to Matthew chapter 2 and make an application to Jesus and to our own lives. This portion of our lesson brought to us by the letter R this morning. Chapter 5 and verse 1, we find a reckoning. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. I believe that verse 1 pictures the present distress that King Hezekiah in Jerusalem 
found themselves in in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. And King Hezekiah is being humiliated. But in verses 2 through 6, we find a reversal. Or you might could call this section a reminder. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers uh, return to join the Israelites." He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, we will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across the borders. Again, these verses seem to reverse uh, the current situation that once again Hezekiah in Jerusalem find themselves in with a reminder of God's promise of deliverance. But let's focus for just a moment upon Bethlehem. There are two towns in the Old Testament that are named Bethlehem. The first is located seven miles northwest of Nazareth, way up in the northern kingdom in the um, inheritance or the tribe of Zebulun. We read about that Bethlehem in Joshua 19 and verse 5. The other, the more famous Bethlehem, is five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it is mentioned several times in the Old Testament. Jacob buried Rachel there after she died giving birth to Benjamin. Genesis chapter uh, 35 and verse 19. It was the home of Ibzan, the tenth judge of Israel. Judges 12 verses 8 and 10. It is mentioned in Judges 17 as the home of the young Levite who became a a personal priest for a man who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. And a very gruesome story recorded there in Judges 17. The story is used as an example of everyone did as they saw fit in those days in Israel. It was also the home of a woman who was murdered in Judges 19. And then finally... We know from Ruth in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 17 that Bethlehem was the home of David. It means house of bread, which seems to have some significance as we will see when we reach the conclusion of this uh, message. But the rest of these verses, Micah reminds Hezekiah of God's Davidic dynasty a promised Messiah and future restoration. And again, it 
it appears to me the immediate deliverance that God will give Hezekiah in Jerusalem from Sennacherib and the Assyrians. Because we know that Hezekiah listens not only apparently to Micah, but also to Isaiah. 2 Kings 19 and verse 2, if we had continued to read from that chapter, tells us that Hezekiah goes to the temple, cries out to God in intense prayer. Isaiah sends word to Hezekiah that God has heard his prayer and Jerusalem will be spared. In fact, this is what we then read at the conclusion of 2 Kings 19 in verses 35 and 36. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were, there were all these dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So we find after uh, this, this concern, again, kind of this message of doom and gloom, Hezekiah sees no way out because of his uh, prayer to God. He and Jerusalem are spared. So we come to the third section of, Matthew, of Micah chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, and once again we see uh, Micah, speak of a remnant. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up and triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. So Oracle 3 of this chapter promises a remnant. The pre uh, preservation of this remnant also means uh, a revival or a renewal, or as I have titled the fourth section in chapter 5, a refinement. In verses 10 through 14, we see that this remnant is restored, but a refinement will take place among God's people in that day, that is, in the day the remnant is restored. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles which, uh, I, when I demolish your cities. Micah indicts God's people. And if this remnant is to be restored, a uh, refinement must take place among them. And it appears that they have pinned their faith to various substitutes for God, and now God is going to purge those things from among them. We might summarize those things these four ways. Military might, civic security, 
superstitious sorcery and idiotic idols. And so we have both, both civic uh, concerns as well as religious concerns among God's people as he refines, restores, renews this remnant. And then finally, in verse 15, God will not only right the wrongs of his own people, but God will punish all those who disobey him. He says, I will take vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. So we have this idea of rest, uh, retribution. Well, once again, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is perhaps the either first or second most popular verse from the book. Uh, it would rival chapter 6 and verse 8, which we will get to preach about next week. We find a messianic prophecy here in chapter 5 in verse 2. And if we were to go over to Matthew chapter 2, you'll remember the story at the birth of Jesus. The Magi from the east uh, have followed the star. They go into Jerusalem and they ask where the king of the Jews has been born. This, of course, makes King Herod very nervous. And we know from uh, secular sources that King Herod was uh, a very cruel kind of leader, uh, a very paranoid kind of leader, uh, often murdering his own sons or wives if he felt they were threatening his reign. And so naturally, he would be very nervous when these wealthy uh, visitors from the east appear in Jerusalem looking for the new king. So he assembles the religious leaders and he asks the question. He didn't know his Old Testament very well. And so he asks, where is the Messiah to be born? And this text from Micah chapter uh, 5 and verse 2 is quoted and applied to Jesus. So we learn at least three things from this prophecy in Micah 5 in verse 2 about Jesus that we see uh, illustrated in his life and ministry. First of all, again, back to uh, the meaning of the word Bethlehem as the house of bread and being where Jesus was born. Jesus declares three times in John chapter 6 that he is the bread of life. Uh, you might remember if you've studied uh, the gospel of John, seven times in that gospel, Jesus will make uh, statements in which he declares, I am something. And it communicates to us who he is. And the first time is in John chapter 6, where again, three times he uh, declares, I am the bread of life. Well, what does bread do for us? It nourishes us. It sustains us. And Jesus says, he is our sustenance. He is the one that nourishes us uh, spiritually. Secondly, as the text indicates... He is also our peace. 
Which is why I read from Ephesians 2, uh, verses 13 and 14, when we began earlier this, this morning, Paul makes that point. And Paul understood Jesus as being our peace. And when Paul wrote these words, uh, being a Jew, he would naturally have thought of the Hebrew word shalom, which is kind of traditionally a typical Jewish greeting, but it has so much more meaning than just a simple greeting. It comes from a root which means to have enough. And so it suggests completeness, wholeness, fullness, abundance. And so when Micah or Paul declare that Jesus is our peace, it is in Jesus that we can be completed, that we can be found whole, full of life, abundant in life, Jesus being our peace. And then finally, probably... uh, the most common uh, metaphor about Jesus that we find in this text. He is our good shepherd. Turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to actually spend uh, a couple of minutes here uh, in John chapter 10. Beginning in verse 14, we find another one of those I am statements that I mentioned previously from the gospel of John. Let's begin reading with verse uh, 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So again, Jesus in another I am statement declares that he is the good shepherd. Now, if we took the time to read the previous verses in John chapter 10, we would learn some other things uh, about Jesus being the good shepherd. Uh, He mentions several key things in the verses we read that he is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Previously, he said the hireling won't do that. No personal investment. But Jesus is invested within us and for us as the good shepherd. So that brings us to then our response. Uh, As uh, members of his flock, I want to suggest four qualities of the sheep. And I want to pick up the text in John 10 in verse 25. I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. 
I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Four qualities of sheep uh, who are a part of the flock of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Number one, sheep, members of the flock of Jesus, are sensitive to his voice. My best illustration of that point, when we were living in Oklahoma City and before Luke and Lindsay took our grandson to Denver, Colorado, Jet was a part of a Tuesday, Thursday kind of Mother's Day Out program, not quite as extensive as our kitty college, but I was responsible for Jet on Tuesday afternoon, highlight of my week. Because about 1.30, I would leave my office and I'd walk around to the other uh, part of, our, uh, of the campus there at Mayfair. And his classroom with six or seven other small children, they're busy playing, waiting for parents or grandparents to pick them up. And the door was open and I could stick my head in there and it didn't matter what Jet was doing. All I had to do was say, Jet, and he immediately would turn around and come running to me sensitive to my voice. And so as we go about our lives and we're busy and we're surrounded by life and just stuff that life throws out at us and we hear a voice and we're sensitive to the voice of Jesus and he's telling us to not do that or to do that. And again, when we hear his voice, we listen to it, which leads to number two. Upon hearing our shepherd's voice, we are then obedient to the shepherd's leadership. I think we've emphasized the point uh, in some other lessons or Bible classes, uh, particularly uh, last uh, spring when Jared and I were uh, preaching through uh, the Think Orange material and we spent some time in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, and that important text uh, from Deuteronomy 6 that is often referred to as the Shema, uh, the Hebrew word for hear. And the idea that for a Jew the word hear meant and necessarily implied obedience. You know, it's, it's one thing to hear someone's voice, and it's another thing to then respond. We can either ignore the vo voice, I mean, we hear it, we even maybe understand it, but unless we respond in an act of obedience, we're, we're really not listening, and we're really not hearing. And we see in John chapter 10, not only are the sheep of Jesus' flock sensitive to his voice, but they respond to it. A third quality of these sheep, they are confident of their destiny. You know, I have talked to so many people, have been there myself a time or two, where uh, maybe because, again, of just life, and doubts arise, 
and uh, we question maybe our faith and we're not sure of our own destiny. Uh, ever, you know, ever, ever been there? And, and, and doubts can be a very positive thing uh, as they promote growth. But doubts can also weigh us down and hinder our advancement as part of the flock of, of Jesus. And so to be confident of our destiny, why can we be confident? Because Jesus is not just a shepherd, he is the good shepherd. And he is leading us to where we need to go, which brings us to the fourth quality, and that is the assurance that we are secure in the shepherd's arms. So as we think about a text like Micah 5 and verse 2, which not only is a messianic prophecy, but helps us to understand who our Messiah is and what he is about and the qualities that he has being a shepherd. It should remind us what our response then should be as a part of his flock. I want to conclude this morning by uh, reading a, a brief paragraph. One of the secondary uh, resources I'm using for this study is a commentary written by a scholar by the name of Leslie Allen. And here's the way he concludes his uh, thoughts from Micah chapter 5. Micah issues a clarion call to Israel for true faith in their God, a faith that transcends nationalism and addiction to religion and to the metaphysical, a faith that is grounded in the revelation of God's character and will. His call comes echoing down the centuries to our own day. Wherein does our supposed security lie? In the safety of Mother Church? In a form of faith that is molded by expediency and compromise in a God made in the image of 21st century man? The prophet bids us beware lest our vaunted faith be a cover for self-sufficiency or self-advancement. He challenges us to study the impact of secular and pagan culture, past or present, on our religious thinking and forms of worship, lest the essence of Christianity be obscured by its subsequent trappings. So the question this morning is, are we following the Good Shepherd? And are, are we a part of the flock of Jesus? Let's stand and sing.